0: Well, it struck me, and you may say, Bradley, good that it struck you in uh, Genesis or Joshua 14. It struck me that there may be a few things in this book of Joshua that really make it hard for us to connect with it. This passage particularly starts with the idea of the allotment of the land, Um, interesting enough, you, you now know that the word allotment comes from the concept of throwing lots, right? And that wasn't throwing a man by the name of Lot. It was actually to use a method either by dice or some other means by which the individuals casting those lots lost control about how they would come out and that the Lord would be the one through the casting of the lots to determine the land. And you read that in the beginning, and you might just scratch your head and go, so what? I just, I don't see the point. You might read those first few verses there in Joshua 14 and say to yourself, wait a minute, I thought that there were 12 tribes of Israel. I read 13 tribes of Israel. What's Bradley trying to pull over on us? A fast one. You might even read those first few verses and say, how about the Levites? How did they get so left out in the cold, right? This passage is about God's, giving the land to the Israelites. There were 12 sons of Jacob. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt, and when Jacob came down, he gave Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, rights as his own sons. And so that's how you get 13, right? The two of Joseph's sons become accounted in the promises of Jacob's sons. And then this idea of the Levites, you can just look up in chapter 13 if you want to, or in Numbers 18 if you want to, and see that God said from the very beginning, the Levites are going to be a tribe unto me. I'm not going to give them an inheritance of land, because I am their inheritance. What was amazing is that the Levites received from the tithes and the offerings of the people, and they received them. And they got to take of those tithes and offerings. And that's how they were fed. And that's how they were paid. And that's how they were able to maintain the temple, right? But the question still stands, why is this so foreign for us? And I want to give you three reasons. I want you to see in the life of Caleb how he might help us understand a little bit more about why this matters. And then I want to demonstrate exactly why it matters to us. So why is it so foreign? I want to postulate that there are three things in this passage that seem foreign to you and me. First is land. The second is this whole idea of judgment that runs throughout the whole passage. And the third is even the presence of God. What does this mean? Look, when we think about land, we take land for granted, right? I don't know many children who think, I can't wait to grow up and buy a plot of land. What I really want is a plot of land. I remember as a young boy walking through some land that my grandfather owned, and he walked around as as if he were the king of that land, deciding which trees to cut and which trees not to cut, trails to make, etc., etc. But we take land for granted. The idea that we would need space in which we can function in a way that we want to function I think some of that comes from the idea that we have experienced freedom all of our lives. If you are from the United States, if you are from a Western world, you go, yeah, this seems like you guys take freedom and land for granted. But I also think that the idea of land is lost on us because technology has changed our sense of geography. Uh, Technology has made it so that we don't think about our community being oriented around a space. a a, a group of people can be spread out across the world because you have thousands of friends on Facebook, right? And then finally, you don't think about land much because you don't think about peace much. You don't think about the idea of, of things settled, the idea that there might be this place in which there can be peace instead of strife you know what might help you connect with this idea of land is to think of land like home even maybe this sense of home that comes with it security right identity relationship and maybe even possibly worship maybe if i went to your homes and saw the things that were in your houses i would know oh this is what this family worships in this house right and this helps us understand a little bit more about the idea of land. You see, land is central to the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's central in every one of God's promises to Abraham, as Abraham promises God, excuse me, as God promises Abraham, if you leave, Ur of the Chaldeans, and if you follow me, I'm going to give you land and I'll make of you a great nation. And from you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Inherent to that problem promise is land. And it's land over and over and over that is repeated, that is repeated to Isaac, that is repeated to Jacob, and that is the focus of our passages. And again, I want you to think about it in the scope of the Bible. Where were Adam and Eve when they first came to the realization of who God was? They were in the garden And what happened to Adam and Eve after, as even the passage Aaron just read, after they chose to disobey God, they were dispelled from the garden. They were driven out, it says. This idea of pushed away from the land. And so this promise of land represents security. It represents identity. It represents relation and even worship. You know, another place that we use it a lot in our lives, especially these days, and might make sense, but you might also resonate with this, this idea when you see someone go off to college, right, and you hope for them that they'll find their, what do we say? We hope they'll find their place. What do we mean by that? We, we mean that there'll be a sense of security, that, that there they would find an identity. We often say we hope they find their people or their group, relations, right? and even worship. So land, though it might seem distant to you, because it represents these security, identity, relation, and worship, it's really central to your life as well. Well, what about judgment? We have been raised in a a judgment-free zone. We love commercials that say this is a judgment-free zone. In our world today, we we have actually said to one another, we cannot judge each other. But throughout this this whole book of Joshua, what we see consistent is judgment, right? And it, and it kind of puts us up on our guard. We hate the idea of your values versus my values, right? We don't like the idea that you have a right to speak to the way I would live my life. And in fact, it, it is part and parcel with being an American, with being in the Western world, that there is a radical individualism that is lost on us when we talk or that 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 allows just judgment to be lost on us when we read it. We go, well, who are you to judge me? But what you've got to understand is that the Bible speaks about judgment, not so much as humans judging other humans, but from a context of creator and creation. The idea that God is the one, because he's the creator, that has the right to judge his creation in Genesis 1, calling it good, and giving it purpose, right? It is loath to us that we would judge each other's values. One of the examples that we could just bring up and that would cause all of us to you know, shuffle around in our seats is to talk about sexual expression and sexual activity. And you go, wait a minute, we can't talk about that. We're we're not allowed to talk about that in the church. That's theirs, that's not mine. That's not my issue. But see, God isn't afraid to talk about judgment because he's the creator and we are the creation. It's different. And this idea of us understanding that our um, 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 repulsion to judgment isn't consistent with Scripture And the last thing that makes this continue to seem so foreign to us is this idea of the presence of god now again we're here to worship when we were coming into worship we were all saying how excited we were that we were going to get to worship in in just a few minutes we're so thankful that this hour of worship has come but i think a lot of us would confess to practically saying we live our lives as if there is no transcendence at all or That if God exists, he particularly exists as a provider for our kingdoms. And if you want to look at one place to kind of understand this, we can look at that place in our prayers or, dare I say, our prayerlessness in our lives. The fact that we spend so little time praying, right? And central to scripture is this concept of reconciliation of humanity with God, presence with God. And that's central to understanding Joshua. These are the things that make it so foreign for us to look at this passage. The concept of land, the concept of judgment, and even the concept of presence with God. But what I want you to know is that what presence of God really points to is this idea of his rule and his reign. The absence of tension. Children, You may never experience this except when your homework is done. Maybe that's the only time that you go, my homework is done. But as you know, you're going to get more homework tomorrow, right? It just keeps coming back. But the presence of God represents shalom. All things rightly related. Rest. Even the call to worship that Dan was talking about. So, How are we going to understand these more clearly? Look at the life of Caleb with me, if you will, in these few verses in in Joshua 14. You can turn to it, page 189, all right? We see Caleb's request and in his inheritance. You've got to hear the story. First of all, notice that Caleb is not an Israelite. Did you recognize that? He's married into the tribe of Judah, the same tribe from whom Jesus comes eventually But he's married into that tribe. His father was a Kenizzite. His father was actually a descendant of Esau, wasn't even an Israelite. And it's kind of amazing that sometimes it takes someone from the outside to shock us into the reality of why these aspects, land, judgment, and even presence of God matter to us. Caleb was one of two people along with Joshua who were sent out in Numbers 13 to spy on the land. Do you remember this? And do you remember that they came back and they reported on the land? And they said, look, the land is beautiful, but it's filled with giants. And if we go in there, we're going to get crushed. And Caleb and Joshua go, no, that's not true. The land is beautiful and it is filled with giants, but if we go in there, it's going to be okay. God's going to fulfill his promises. And Caleb was the one who stood up with Joshua at that time And Caleb begins to speak. And I want you to see what Caleb focuses on. First, he focuses on God's words. Then he remembers God's faithfulness. And then he depends on his presence. Look at it with me, if you will. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 say this. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jepunah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh, concerning you and me. Remember, he's talking to Joshua. The two who stood up and said, This is going to be okay. God's going to be with us. He says, You know it. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh, Burnia to, sp- to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart In other words, he's saying, I told the truth. I told the the truth that we could do this. If God was with us, we could do this. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt. Remember, we've seen the hearts of the people melt over and over in Joshua. It means they're filled with fear and they turn and they run the other way. And he says, Caleb of himself, yet I wholly followed the Lord. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and for your children forever because you have wholly followed the, the Lord my God. Notice how Caleb focuses on the God's word. He focuses on two things about God's word in this, in this section. God's promise that he would be given the land and God's acknowledgement that his heart was fully set on him. If you go back and you read Numbers 14, it's actually the Lord that recognizes before Moses that Caleb's heart was fully set on him, that it followed him, that it said, I want what you want. Now, this is an amazing thing. He's not even an Israelite. He's not even one of God's people. Not by birth, anyway. But he married into the Israelites. And this is what God says of him. He's fixed on God's word, both the gift of land and also the recognition of his heart. In verses eight and nine, it talks about how Caleb's heart was fully set on the Lord. And it says it twice, doesn't it? The amazing thing is that Caleb knew what the Israelites had to learn in the desert. Deuteronomy 8 tells us that God sent them into the desert, and this is what Moses says, and you shall remember the whole way of the Lord your God that led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know, and now this is a phrase that you know, That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The second thing that Caleb does is he remembers God's faithfulness, right? Look at verses 10 and 11 with me, if you will. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years, since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. Listen to what he says about himself. Which of you expects to be able to say this about yourself at 85? Listen to it now. He says this. I am still as strong today as I was in that day, the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. That's an amazing reality, right? He focused on God's faithfulness. He focused on this idea that God has kept me alive just as he said. God said that the only two people who would live to go into the promised land were going to be Caleb and Joshua. And Caleb says, God's been faithful to me. It's an amazing thing. I'd love to talk for a few minutes about what you hope to be at 85 years old, what you hope your strength might be. But the amazing thing here is Josh, or Caleb casts himself on the faithfulness of God. And then finally, he depends on God's presence, Right? Read verse 12 with me, okay? Verse 12 says this. So now, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Caleb depends on God's presence. He says, look, give me the land and it may be that God is with me. Now when Caleb says that, you've got to understand that Caleb means something else other than like maybe God will be with me, maybe God won't. Because what Caleb is faithful to from looking back in Numbers 13 and 14 is that Caleb was convinced that God was with them. And so he said, I will go and God has kept me strong that I might drive them out. God is going to be with me. Caleb depends on the presence of the Lord. Do you want to know what he says in Numbers 14 when he pleads with the people? And he says, please don't do this horrible thing. Don't do this horrible thing of disbelieving God and his presence among you and his willingness to fight on your behalf. He says, if the Lord delights in us, he'll be with us and he'll give us the land. I kind of want to stop and say, wait a minute. Who is this guy to say that the Lord delights in us? Because what he's saying is he's saying, look, God delights in us. He delights in us. This is a non-Israelite saying this. And the Israelites go, let's pick up stones and stone him. Where, Where did Caleb get this language? Caleb heard Moses use it. He heard Moses use it when Moses explained that the Israelites were God's treasured possessions, that on them he had set his steadfast love. Caleb had never met a God that identified with sinful people before, and never a God like this. A God who delights in his people. Do you want to know that the prophets would take up that word delight, God delighting in us? The psalmist would take it up and says, the one whom the Lord delights in is the one who has the fear of the Lord in himself, is the one whom the Lord delights in. Psalm 18 says, from the lips of David, I cried out to the Lord and he rescued me because he delighted in me. And here we hit the deepest longing of the human heart to know that the one who created us delights in us. When the Israelites cried out in Exodus when they were in bondage in Egypt, it said that the Lord heard their mourning, that he saw them and that he knew that he acted on their behalf. Caleb fell in love with this God. Caleb's heart was fully given over to God. What would it take for your heart and my heart to look the same way? A famous preacher by the name of Thomas Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers said it this way. It says that what we need to experience is the expulsive power of, Of a new affection. The expulsive power that expels out every other affection that we have and replaces it with this new affection. Chalmers says it either happens in one of two ways. That you convince each other that everything that the world has is full of vanity. Or that you introduce the other to a love that is greater than any love they've ever known. And he actually says only one of these work. The idea of convincing each other that everything that the world has to offer is vanity isn't going to work. And so the only hope is to introduce yourself to a love that is greater than any love you have ever known. And see, this is where presence comes in. This is where Advent happens. The promise that was given to Joshua, I will be with you, becomes reality in Christ Emmanuel. God with us, the presence of Christ with us. John three sixteen says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. At Jesus' baptism, God spoke and he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And even the accusations hurled at Jesus from the cross. Speak to the psalm that was written in 22 that says, let him cry out to God because he says God delights in him. Jesus knew that God delighted in him. He knew God's delight so much that he obeyed God even to death, taking on your sin and my sin. And why? Because God loves you. He delights in you. Jesus died on the cross for you because God has set his affection on you once forever. The recognition of that expulsive affection is what drives out every other affection. And it's God's to make known to us. You see, when you accept Christ, you say Christ is alive in me. I accept that I need a savior, that my life is broken and as beautiful as this world is, it's broken world, and I identify with Christ, God's means of salvation. And see, the thing that follows from that presence is judgment. Children, don't miss this. If you live out that reality, if you say this is what I believe, Paul says to the Corinthians, to some you're going to become the stench of death. People are going to want nothing to do with you. Don't tell me that I'm broken and don't tell me that this is a broken world. But to some you're going to become the fragrance of life because they're going to see I know it too and I can't believe God loves me that way. And then finally, we get to this idea of land. This already picture of what is the land? What is that promised land? And see, the Apostle Paul says it's the church, the Israel of God, the offspring of Abraham, those with faith. These are the ones where we should feel that security, that identity, and that place of worship. There's a not yet aspect to that too. And that's why we've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what's to come. This idea that the new heaven And the new earth is going to come down. A new city from heaven. And God is going to redeem everything here. It's amazing. This idea of what is yet to come. What I want you to know is that your life is a life of a sojourner. It's actually more like the life of the Levites who weren't given any physical land. But God himself was given to them. We, the church, are called a kingdom of priests. That language is as old as Exodus, but is used in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. This is why we sing, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, and cast a wistful eye. I want you to know something. Your life is not to be oriented around one who has already arrived in the kingdom. But your life and my life is defined by our sojourning, by our desiring and our longing for that day so that we can hold loosely the things in this life that we might give Christ the glory, the land, the judgment, even the presence of God. When we understand them, in the terms of security and identity, worship, the value of humanity being the image of God, and the longing for everything to be made right, Caleb leads us not only into what it means to put our faith and trust in Christ, but leads us to Advent and the waiting. Please pray with me.